This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, um, as Ed mentioned, I'm uh, sort of a biochemist by training, and I've been wondering for many years uh, sort of how it is possible, actually, that ancient DNA is preserved in fossils for over tens of thousands of years. And I'm also wondering how much further can we go in time so how will it be in five or 50 years, perhaps, if I can still see that, if someone giving a talk here, of what material are they going to talk about? Is it a million years? Um, so in, in order to address the question of how long DNA can be preserved in bones, I think it's worthwhile to look a bit into bone structure. Um, the bone consists of two major uh, components. One is uh, um, an organic component, collagen. Um, it's a protein that uh, gives some level of elasticity to bones so that they don't break easily. Um, and then there's another very interesting component, which makes up up to 50% uh, of the bone mass, which is hydroxyapatite. It's sort of a form of calcium phosphate that has a very interesting um, uh, biochemical property, which is shown in this experiment here. Um, if you take a mixture of DNA of different sizes, sort of similar to what you might find in an ancient bone, um, and you d dissolve this DNA in water, and you add a suspension of pure hydroxyapatite. The DNA will instantly bind to the hydroxyapatite. And then you can uh, wash that hydroxyapatite powder, um, often with water or with all sorts of low-salt buffers, um, and you will not release this DNA from hydroxyapatite. It will only come down if you give it a harsh chemical treatment, such as using a decalcifier to uh, break up the hydroxyapatite structure or using a strong phosphate buffer. And you can repeat this experiment using ancient bone. And so this is shown here. So you, um, the DNA, a pool of DNA fragments immediately binds to ancient bone um, that is also known to contain endogenous ancient DNA, and that's of age 40 to 100,000 years. And it only gets, uh, comes down after um, intense treatment with chemicals. And that even works if you have bones that are much older and bones that are actually known, at least at the current level of resolution, not to carry any ancient DNA, like this one from uh, a site in Germany that's 600,000 years old, uh, or this bone of a dinosaur that's 80 million years old. So while this is sort of a, a very interesting proof that you can recover DNA from dinosaurs, um, it's not yet proof that this can also be done for uh, authentic dinosaur DNA. Um, but an important take-home message here is that the bone structure itself sort of uh, provides a very good um, 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 carrier for, for DNA. And there's basically no limit in the DNA binding uh, capacity of bone over time. So what is it then that sort of limits us in our ability to study ancient DNA through time? And obviously there are also... Um, uh, other processes, uh, processes taking place that will degrade DNA over time. There are a lot of um, reactions, uh, some hydrolytic, some oxidative reactions, and uh, the, most, uh, the ones that are thought to damage DNA most um, are those ones uh, with the red arrow here, um, which is hydrolysis of uh, purine bases, so A's, the letters A's and G's coming off the DNA, and then over time your DNA breaks down into shorter and shorter molecules. And you can model this, for example, here, assuming a, um, a strand break every 50 base pairs in your DNA, then you will see that you have uh, very few long molecules, but uh, a lot of very short molecules. And the more you damage your DNA, the more this distribution gets um, shifted to the left end until so all your DNA has disappeared or broken down into fragments that are too short to make uh, sense of. 
Um, so for that, and uh, it's important to know that this, these chemical processes are temperature dependent. So um, they occur much slower at lower temperature, which is also why if you uh, look for the world record of, uh, sort of ancient DNA genome sequencing, um, you have to, uh, have to go to the permafrost. So there's this, um, two years ago, I think, there was a very exciting paper published, um, um, an almost full genome of a 700,000 years old horse from permafrost. Um, it, it gets more complicated if you leave permafrost, and if you're then sort of, uh, if your fossils are subject to these temperature cycles that occur during the Pleistocene. Um, so for the last roughly 100,000 years, temperature were mostly colder than they are now, but then you enter these interglacials where you have elevated temperature, and these are very detrimental to DNA preservation. Um, nonetheless, sort of being limited to the last 100,000 years and temperate climate zones is not too bad after all. There are some very interesting um, events uh, taking place in human evolution, um, and one of them has been mentioned before by Sriram is the human dispersal out of Africa, which may have occurred sort of with the major wave around 50,000 years ago. And um, so humans, when they, uh, when they left Africa, they were still Neanderthals uh, living in sort of Western and Central Eurasia. Um, and we have generated genome sequences from uh, several Neanderthals, also one to very high quality. And we could make inferences from these genome sequences um, that show um, that Neanderthals are, as expected, also by morphological evidence, a sister group to modern humans. So they're a different evolutionary lineage. But we can, could also see in uh, um, the analysis of these genomes, it was first time shown by Ed Green in 2010, that there was actually admixture going on. So that, um, some, uh, that there was some contribution of the Neanderthal uh, genome into modern humans. And we've seen more recently sort of a weak signal also for the other way around, so that uh, some Neanderthals may have picked up uh, modern human DNA when they interacted. So the analysis of genomes from the last 100,000 years has also brought us to Denisovans. Uh, so they were discovered based on just a few small fossils, a tiny uh, finger bone and a few teeth that were found in Denisova cave. And uh, based on the analysis of their genome, uh, we could show that they, are, uh, that they are indeed a sister group to Neanderthals. So they are like the um, eastern brothers or sisters of Neanderthals. Um, and they have contributed also their DNA to modern humans. But unlike Neanderthals, uh, not to all humans outside of Africa, but um, uh, to, to humans in um, Eastern Asia and, uh, and mostly like in the, um, the highest proportion of ancestry of Denisovan ancestry you find in Oceania here, which makes us believe that Denisovans were once uh, much more widespread than just look in Denisova cave. Now, the problem is still we are looking sort of at the tips of these evolutionary branches. So we are looking at the last sort of Denisovans, the last Neanderthals, sort of relatively late modern humans, and it would be tremendously exciting to look further down in the past and uh, try to understand sort of what are the genomes like of these ancestors, of the archaic ancestor, and what for, for me would be very exciting is to sort of find the genome of the sort of last ancestor between humans and the archaics. Now, as I mentioned before, um, sort of um, chemical reactions make DNA break down in very short pieces. So if you want to address that problem uh, from a biochemical perspective, what you have to do is you have to go for these extremely short fragments and hoping that you would find some surviving uh, DNA in this size range. So you, um, the question then is, where are we currently in doing this? And this is sort of a typical fragment size uh, 
size the distribution of DNA sequences that we recover from fossils. So from a few years ago, from the world record holder, uh, um, the horse genome, the 700,000-year horse genome that was sequenced by a group in Copenhagen. And as you can see, the DNA sequences coming from this horse are indeed quite short, sort of centering on uh, about 70 base pairs. Um, but even, even so, there, we, could, we could in principle make use also of sequences that are shorter than this, up to maybe 30, 35 base pairs. Um, so the question is, are these sequences lost in sample preparation, or, or is it that truly there's no longer DNA preserved in these bones? Um, so I, um, I and a, uh, several graduate students in my group have sort of intensely looked at this over the past years, and we've basically gone through every step of the sample preparation process and trying to refine it so that we maximize the number of molecules that we keep in each step and that we also extract the shortest possible DNA fragments. And this starts, uh, obviously, with DNA extraction, so it's a process of isolating the DNA fragments from the bones or teeth and purifying them so that they can be used in downstream uh, reactions. There's a second very Im important process involved in uh, DNA sequencing these days, which is library preparation. Um, and in this process, you attach short artificial pieces of DNA to the ends of each DNA fragment, and these... Uh, short adapters, so-called adapters, can then be used to make uh, thousands of copies of each molecule and then uh, also to prime the sequencing reaction and read the molecule out. As a last step of this process, um, you're taking the sequences coming out of the sequencer and trying to match them to a, a known reference genome. In our case, it's the human reference genome, which has been sequenced to very high quality in 2001. Um, and even this process actually um, has some issues, and uh, we are also working on sort of optimizing the bioinformatic algorithm that we use uh, to identify uh, human-like sequences. Now, going through all this sort of in several cycles for several years, we eventually uh, sort of uh, determined the fragment size distribution in ancient bones that looks more like this. So this is what I've shown you before. This was the um, distribution of fragments from the permafrost. This now is... Um, a typical fragment size distribution that we see in, in most bones from, uh, from caves and temperate climate zones. And what you see, indeed, there are very, very short fragments in the bones. Many fragments much shorter than we can currently use for analysis because um, sequence is then so short you can't even identify it as a human sequence anymore. Um, but it's not that we are sort of losing these long ones and now we gain the short molecules. Indeed, it's a sort of an extra gain of short molecules. So this here, these small black stripes are the fragment size distribution that I've shown you before. And sort of this gain of short molecules is on top of this. Now, from the sort of methods perspective, we are all ready to sequence older DNA than before. But the uh, problem, of course, still is you also need a site that allows an extraordinary level of DNA preservation. And we were lucky enough to identify this site in northern Spain. Um, the site is called the Cima de los Huesos, the Pit of Bones. And uh, it uh, carries the remains of at least 28 uh, virtually complete uh, hominin skeletons that were dated to 430,000 years ago. And this is sort of the biggest assemblage of fossils from the Middle Pleistocene in Eurasia, the time period preceding 130,000 years. The site is very special in that it's sort of uh, 30 meters below ground. Um, you can, uh, it's very difficult to reach it. It doesn't... Uh, it's only uh, through a sort of very hidden cave entrance and you have to sort of crawl in there. So there's very little air exchange with outside and very stable temperature in the cave, around 11 degrees. And, and this basically makes it a perfect fridge. 
Now we were uh, indeed successful in recovering DNA fragments from that uh, from a, from several fossils from this site. And in blue here, I'm showing sort of the part of the size distribution where we find um, evidence for the presence of short, highly damaged uh, ancient DNA molecules. The rest of this distribution is mostly made up by my, my, microbial sequences and modern human contamination. Now the problem is these are there were very few sequences only coming out. Um, so we had to, so in order to make some sense out of them, we first had to look at one particular type of DNA in the mammalian cell, which is the mitochondrial DNA. And this DNA is special in that it's not present in only two copies per cell, as the 23 chromosomes that everyone knows about, but it's indeed present in, uh, in several copies in, um, in hundreds of mitochondria. So um, for each, for each uh, part of the nuclear genome, you have hundreds of, uh, of copies of the mitochondrial genome. And even, even so, we still needed around two grams of material, which is a lot with uh, current, date stand, current day standards, to just get one sort of nice uh, assembly of the mitochondrial genome. And if you want to compare this to what we typically get from late Pleistocene sites, from sort of uh, moderately preserved Neanderthal remains, um, there we get much more, many more copies of the mitochondrial genome from uh, much less material. Uh, in summary, it's about a thousand times less than what we've seen in other Neanderthal samples. So having the uh, mitochondrial genome, we could uh, build a tree from mitochondrial DNA. And the first thing to note here is that if you look just at the size of the branches, you will see that um, all, of these, uh, um, all of these lineages here, modern humans, Neanderthals, Denisovans, they are relatively long. And the Cima de los Huesos sequence that's on a short branch indicating this extraordinary age, right? While the other um, individuals kept mutating, this individual uh, died a few hundred thousand years earlier and thus lacks mutations. Uh, further than this, this tree is actually very confusing. Um, and this is because uh, mitochondrial DNA, even though it is preferable for technical reasons, only shows a very limited, uh, gives very limited information about the ancestry. It's only inherited from mothers to their children, um, and it, it reflects only a small, uh, a small part of the population history. So instead of looking at uh, mitochondrial DNA, it's much better to look at nuclear DNA and, uh, to determine how this individual was related to Denisovans and Neanderthals. And um, sort of after screening more samples from the site, we were eventually able to recover as much as the thousands of the genome of, a, um, of an individual from Cima de los Huesos. And there's extremely little data, but still it's enough to do a very simple analysis. Now, having so few sequences, uh, one thing you cannot do is actually compare these sequences to a high-quality reference genome and then ask, where does it differ? And then you see these red dots here, which indicate sequencing errors. Because on average, one in 100 base pairs is wrong. So, but what you can do instead is use a trick and use a data set, a reference data set of high-quality genomes, including the genomes of many uh, present-day humans, but also the archaic genomes that have, we have sequenced to high-quality, and identify uh, positions in the genome where, for example, the Neanderthal differs from all the other um, humans, where the Denisovans differ from Neanderthal's humans in the chimpanzee, and so on. And then you can just count at positions overlapping these sites, how does the Cima de los Huesos sequence look like? And we did identify 100 sequences that overlap sites that are sort of diagnostic for Neanderthals, and 42 of them actually showed the Neanderthal state. Um, in contrast to this, we had a sort of roughly equal number of sequences matching a Denisovan-specific site, but only 10 share the Denisovan state. So, and this is a highly significant difference, 
And, um, and there's a very simple uh, inference from this, is that indeed the Sima de los Huesos hominins were closer to Neanderthals than Denisovans, which also means um, that Neanderthals and Denisovans must have uh, diverged by the time these individuals lived. Um, so one sort of important message from this is that it gives us, uh, for the first time, a relatively stable anchor point in the timeline of human evolution. So both the geological dating methods as well as sort of the branch lengths of the mitochondrial DNA that we've looked at um, arrive at an age estimate about 400,000 years. And so we can say that the common ancestor of these two archaic lineages must have lived before. Now, there have been in the past a number of attempts to, um, to infer the uh, population split times using, using the genomes of Neanderthals and Denisovans. And then depending on the parameters that you use, you arrive at different ages. If I use the most compatible um, estimates, uh, the estimates that are most compatible with this number, um, then indeed I would estimate that the um, human archaic divergence is something like uh, 550 to 800,000 years ago, and probably even towards sort of the higher end of this. So the, sort of the good or the bad news is, as you will, that if you want to sequence that common ancestor between humans and Neanderthals, we have to go much further back in time. So there are still challenges waiting for us here. And yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully being able to present this at some point. Um, so um, I want to thank all my uh, colleagues in Leipzig, uh, especially Svante Pebo, who's sort of the mastermind behind all the ancient DNA work in Leipzig, the Max Planck Society for the um, very good funding that we have, and um, all the colleagues in, uh, in my lab and the graduate students, as well as Importantly, the, um, our collaborators in Spain who've done brilliant work in excavating these samples very cleanly, I must say. And thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.